In our study of ecclesiology and eschatology, there's one vital factor that needs to be considered. This seeks to answer the question, how should I interpret scripture as it relates to Old Testament promises to Israel and to the New Testament understanding of the nature and destiny of the church? This, as we shall see, is a vitally important issue and one that deserves special attention. It should seem evident already that the study of the church in a biblical eschatology presents a special problem for how scripture is interpreted. In our reading it was noted that there is considerable disagreement regarding the relationship between Israel and the church. There are those who hold that the church replaces Israel altogether. Still others, such as Erickson, suggest that Israel is merely absorbed into the church and receives its promised blessings in that new relationship. Still others make a strong distinction between the two and look for the fulfillment of Israel's promises yet in the future, while the church enjoys a special place as well in God's plan for the present age and for the future. One of the critical issues relating to how one understands the nature and destiny of the church and Israel focuses on a long-running debate between what is known as covenant theology and dispensationalism. Covenant theology takes its name from what is perceived as the covenant of grace planned from the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell into sin. At that time, it is suggested that the persons of the Trinity established the plan of redemption that would culminate on the cross. It would be there that all the promises of God's people, the patriarchs and Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament would be fulfilled. Dispensationalists also recognize the central importance of the cross in God's overall plan of redemption. However, they place special emphasis on the distinctive ways God has worked with various groups throughout human history. For example, it is clear that God dealt with Adam and Eve differently before the fall into sin and after. This is considered a dispensational change. Likewise, we recognize that God's dealings with his people changed significantly after the inauguration of the church. It is expected further that his dealings with us will also change after he inaugurates his kingdom on the earth. Each of these repre represent separate dispensations. Hence, it is only appropriate to interpret the various prophecies of Scripture according to the specific group or dispensation to which these prophecies relate, whether to Abraham, the nation Israel, or to the church. If the covenant of grace is employed as the key to interpreting the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament, as well as the promises of the New Testament, we must begin with Calvary and work backward from there. As one well-known covenant theologian put it to me, you must interpret the Bible backward from Revelation to Genesis, not forward. Start at the fulfillment and work back to the promise to understand what it was intended to mean. Using this approach, the theologian sees no substantial difference between the church and Israel. They are both the people of God. They also understand that most of the promises to Israel have been already fulfilled spiritually in the church, and hence there is very little to say about eschatology except the general resurrection and judgment. Philosophically, this follows a deductive approach to the study. 
Dispensationalists, on the other hand, seek to approach the scriptures the way they were written, that is, from the beginning in Genesis. This commences with the special promises to Abraham and works forward through the various covenants of the Old Testament, looking for explicit fulfillment of the promises as given. Here we begin with the promise and look for the literal fulfillment. In this system, there's a strong distinction then between Israel and the church. Dispensationalists look for Israel to receive all of her promises yet to be fulfilled, including especially the earthly Davidic kingdom promises. For these reasons, the dispensationalist is going to be very careful to, to distinguish between these two entities. They will also have much more to say about eschatology, especially as it relates to the future millennium and how the return of Christ relates to it. This is often emphasized as an inductive approach to eschatology. This highlights two important questions. What happens if we approach the promises inductively, beginning in Genesis and working toward the New Testament? And then second, how does this impact the content and structure of our eschatology? Does it really make that much difference? As we shall see, it makes a profound difference. Let's trace the covenants of promise and see where they take us. The Abrahamic covenant is the key that unlocks our understanding of the later covenants. Here, God gives specific promises to Abraham and to his descendants that would be embraced by him and his seed down to the present day. These would include the promise of a seed that would become a great nation. It included personal blessings. Abraham would be great, and his name would be great. And then third, God promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. These promises are given and reiterated most clearly in Genesis 12 and 15. It is further confirmed by the miraculous birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah when they were advanced in years, long past childbearing age. Not only does God bring about the conception and birth of Isaac, but the cha he changes Abram's name to Abraham and gives him a sign of the covenant, that is circumcision, that is to be practiced in perpetuity thereafter. When God originally called Abraham, he said he would take him to a land that he would show him. For Abraham to ever see that land, he would have to leave the land of his fathers and follow God's call. Upon his arrival, God reiterated the covenant, Genesis 15, to make it clear that God was giving him and his descendants a specific piece of real estate, and it would be in this place of promise that his blessings would be showered upon them. It was especially stated to be the land located between the river of Egypt and the Euphrates. There was no way Abraham could have imagined that God didn't mean a real geographical place. And there is no hint that God didn't really mean this literally, but had some spiritual land in mind instead. Following the covenant given to Abraham, the next significant covenant of promise is the Palestinian covenant, enunciated through Moses, as the people prepared to enter into the promised land once again after a long captivity in Egypt. 
The observant student will immediately recognize that the Palestinian Covenant doesn't actually give us anything new. Rather, it is an expansion on the original promise given to Abraham concerning the national blessings that his descendants would receive. What is important to recognize here, too, is that the conditions laid down do not define their right of ownership. Rather, they represent conditions necessary for God's continued blessing in the land. Disobedience would result in God's punishment and cursing upon them, which would even lead them uh, lead to their expulsion from the very land God is giving them on this occasion. Once again, when we come to the Davidic covenant, we are not really adding anything new to the Abrahamic covenant. Rather, God is expanding on the way these national blessings would be carried out through a kingdom and a kingdom line that would anticipate the third promise to Abraham, that is, through him, the world would be blessed. What the Davidic covenant effectively does is to narrow the fulfillment down to a specific line from the seed of Abraham, that of David. It is said that his house, his kingdom, and his throne would be established forever. In Psalm 89, it is said that God would not equivocate in this promise to David. He promised him a literal lineage, a throne, and a kingdom. And David understood it precisely this way. When we get to the New Testament, it is not surprising, then, that the Gospel writers go out of their way to show that Jesus was a legitimate descendant of both Abraham and David. It is also not surprising that Jesus' kingdom would be the fulfillment of these promises as given. Once again, we need to be reminded that while there is a spiritual aspect to the fulfillment of this promise, there is also a geopolitical aspect to it that cannot be ignored. Then again, when we study the new covenant given to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the specifics of this promise do not abrogate the promises to Abraham. Rather, they enlarge upon it even further. It is here that we see how Judah and Israel will become a blessing to all the world when God writes his law upon their heart and they once again become his people. The author of Hebrews will reiterate this promise in relation to the finished work of Christ for the salvation of the world. It would be through this greatest son of David that the universal and the spiritual aspects of the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. To summarize then, the provisions of the new covenant ratify the blessings promised to Abraham and enlarge upon it in the subsequent covenants under Moses and David. They are national, spiritual, and abiding, and they promise a kingdom that will truly bless the entire world. What is important to recognize here is that while the provisions of the new covenant replace the provisions of the Mosaic covenant with the giving of the law, they do not replace the promises given to Abraham. What is known today as replacement theology, or as some prefer supersessionism, suggests that the provisions of the new covenant indicate that the church will replace Israel as the recipient of these promises. This is nowhere suggested. 
Another important factor to observe in regard to the New Covenant is the way it anticipates the Atonement of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The abiding spiritual blessings will require more than could be possible through the sacrifices offered up under the Mosaic Covenant. It will take the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ to render the fulfillment of these promises possible. So to chart out the relationship between these various covenants of the Old Testament, we see they are all woven together as one cloth. Each covenant enlarged on the original and reaffirmed God's intention to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David. And what is especially important to notice as we think about eschatology is that several of these explicit promises yet await fulfillment. Promises relating to the land, the throne, and the kingdom of David await fulfillment to this very day. When we take this approach, it's evident that it's very difficult to see how these details of the promises to Abraham and his descendants can be morphed into a non-literal spiritual kingdom in the church. From this analysis, it is evident that if we follow the biblical text from the first promises given to Abraham down through to the New Testament, there are numerous promises that have yet to be fulfilled. If we hold to the full authority of Scripture on these matters, we must recognize that there is a future time when these promises will be fulfilled, including the land promises. David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, has come, literally from the lineage of Abraham and David. If Jesus' intention was to establish a different kind of kingdom than the one promised, then the New Testament writers wasted their time showing this connection. But the fact remains that it was the Abraham connection that explained why Jesus came to the Jews in the first place and how his kingdom relates to the fulfillment of the promises given at the birth of their existence as a people. His kingdom will come, but not until the king sits upon the throne of his father David. We can see then that an inductive approach to the interpretation of biblical prophecy makes a significant difference in the outcome. Such an approach enables the reader to follow the text, not tradition. It allows the prophecies to speak for themselves and not to be forced into a preconception deductively of how they must be fulfilled. Once again, taking this approach, a clear distinction between the promises given to Israel and those given to the church is to be made. And with respect to our eschatology, we gain an understanding of why such an approach yields a much more comprehensive understanding of future events. If these prophecies are understood in the same way Abraham or David understood them, we still await the coming of our King when Jesus establishes David's kingdom upon the earth and he reigns upon his throne in Zion.